Good morning. Everybody doing okay? The guys are all, the guys whose wives are at the beach at the women's retreat, I'm surprised y'all are like here alive actually. I almost died the past couple days. Eat weird, eat weird stuff, go to bed later, just strange things. Rogue males are not, are not good things for the earth. Anyway, glad you're here, everybody. All of our visitors, um, our regular folks, uh, friends from the Healing Transition, Women's Healing Transition, from the community, from elsewhere, we really appreciate your presence with us today. Our, our theme at this church, as I've been uh, talking about here the last few weeks, is um, uh, taken from 1 John 4, 19, which is on these banners around our church buildings on our website. It says, we love because he, that is God, first loved us. So one of the things we're, we're trying to do during uh, this year is, to, is to, as a congregation and as individual Christians is to open ourselves more fully, to open our hearts, our heads, our, our, our lives more fully to what God's Word teaches us about love. God's love for us, and then in return our love for God, our love for others, whether that be in our, our families, uh, out in the community at large, or in this church, you know, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. What does the Bible teach us about love? One of the greatest teachings on love in the whole Bible has to be 1 Corinthians 13. Um, I've, I've, growing up, I heard this chapter referred to as the love chapter, right? It's just a, a big, nice, beautiful, beautifully worded statement about what love is. It's, it's the kind of thing that's, you know, on uh, posters and uh, back in the 80s when cross-stitch was big, a whole lot of people would have uh, 1 Corinthians 13, or at least part of it, on a cross-stitch. Um, and uh, so, so on its own, 1 Corinthians 13 is worth our undivided attention because we care a lot about love. God is love. He's calling us to love, ultimately. And 1 Corinthians 13 uh, is a, 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 a big source of information about that. Sometimes we, we view this text, though, in isolation. And, and contrary to the way that we typically have viewed it, um, it's not a passage that's really a context-free, kind of standalone treatise on love. One indication of that is the fact that it says these strange things that, you know, if you're a person who's got, you've got one of those cross stitches of 1 Corinthians 13 on your wall, and a, a fellow Christian who knows the scriptures comes in, they're not going to think much of it. They go, oh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 13. Somebody else, though, would love reading verses 4 through 7. But then the first paragraph and the last paragraph where it starts talking about what's talking about tongue speaking and prophecies, they're probably like, say what? Because this chapter on love, is, it, it appears right in the middle of a three or four chapter long treatment of how spiritual gifts were to be used, right? From chapter 11 through chapter 14. Uh, we're reading about disorder in the, the, uh, the assembly of the, of the Christians as they relate together uh, in, in, in worship and the Lord's Supper and so on and studying God's Word. Um, there's all sorts of disorder going on. And a lot of that has to do, especially in chapter 12 through 14, with the use of these gifts that God, God's Spirit, has endowed different individuals uh, with in the church. And so this chapter on love, we're going to look at this morning on its own, but next week the plan is to plug 1 Corinthians 14 back into its context. And I think this will say a lot about uh, some of the things that, that we uh, deal with as a church and that any church ultimately deals with, and that is how do we use the gifts that God has given us all? 
1 Corinthians 12 says that every Christian is given a gift. We sometimes just focus in on the fact that these, some of these are miraculous spiritual gifts. Not all of them listed in the list are in, in the chapters around those. And, and it does say that each one is gifted. Every Christian is gifted by the Spirit of God, according to 1 Corinthians 12. You don't have to have tongues or prophecy like in the ancient world to have a spiritual gift. And then Romans 12 has a whole other list, some of which are the same, some of which are different, using a slightly different um, uh, 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 sort of language. Anyway, what we want to do then is understand, first of all, what we're talking about when we talk about love. If we're going to talk about love, what do we mean by love? All right? So let's just kind of get this out of the way first to make sure we're on the same page when it comes to talking about what the Bible means when the Bible's talking about love. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's word is agape. So if you look at, uh, I've got it highlighted in red here, it, it, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, or maybe I counted wrong, 8 to 10 uh, occurrences of the word love. In each case, it's the Greek word agape, which is the idea of, of an active um, self-sacrificing love. Okay, and it it's, it's, would be highly inappropriate to try to understand what love means in chapter 13 of this letter without looking at how Paul uh, has written the rest of the letter, because it's all in the same context, right? And if we look at uh, the, the larger context of Paul's letter, his first letter to the church at Corinth, love cannot be understood apart from the cross, all right? The cross of Christ. This is the ultimate expression of of love in the history of the universe. This is what Paul leads with in this letter. Right after talking about, hey, I've heard there's divisions in your church, the very first solution he gives is to remind them that he brought the word of the cross. Okay? Um, and so we've got to keep the cross as the centerpiece of love. This is the, the image, the expression, the ultimate and clearest, most essential manifestation of what love is is in the writings of the Apostle Paul and throughout the Bible. So there are a couple new words you're going to learn today. Maybe they're not new to you, probably not to a lot of you. But I always get heat for using words. It's going to warn you. I, I, this should be an opportunity. Why is this a burden? Learn a new word. It's fun. <laughs> I don't understand. I never understood why that. I, new word. Huh. Okay. I love new words. Look, there's two of them. This one even isn't even that new. David makes them up right and left. So or, just kidding. He accuses me of that. The first word is cruciform. I know we've used that before. A lot of you probably don't see that as new at all. Some of you may have never heard that word. Cruciform or cruciformity. Cruci is, is from the word for cross. Form just means shape or form. So to be cruciform means to be cross-shaped. The love we're talking about is cross-shaped, cross-defined love. It is love that imitates what God did in Christ on the cross. Namely, sacrificing himself for the needs of others and the well-being of others. So think, keep that in mind. When we talk about love uh, today and next week, and when Paul talks about it, he's typically talking about cruciform love, the love of the cross, cross-shaped love. And this is a very countercultural thing. Um, I thought I had a slide that just went black. Anyway, we'll just stay right there. Um, very cross, it's a very countercultural thing. It, it takes human hierarchies that are usually based on power or uh, you know control and you know or, or wisdom or intelligence or something like that. Power, knowledge, knowledge is power, power is knowledge. And it, it takes all those hierarchies 
uh, that tries to be over people and in control of other people, and it flips them on their head. That's what the cross does. And this is very counterintuitive. It isn't what cultures and societies of human beings have typically thought. So um, we typically seek to be assertive. We want ourselves or our group or our community or our people or our whatever to be heard. We want to have agency. We want to have some power. We don't want somebody else having power and, and, and abusing our group. We want to give ourselves power. And so it's about self-assertion. It's about going upward. It's about controlling the narrative. It's about being on top. Well, in God's world, here's the point about cruciformity. It's the embrace of weakness. Not power, but weakness. The cross was weakness. You're being put to death in a shameful way. And Jesus accepts that. He embraces that. But he's doing it for the welfare of other people. And that, in God's world, is true power. So weakness becomes power. Power turns out to be just another form of weakness. Wisdom, human wisdom, turns out to be just another form of foolishness. Same old, same old. Doesn't really work. Promises a lot, delivers very little. Whereas what looks like foolishness to the world turns out to be incredible divine wisdom. And that's what Paul leads with in 1 Corinthians. So we need to understand that everything in 1 Corinthians is framed by that. Let me just remind you of this. So back in chapter 1, after hearing from Chloe's household, these messengers, that there was division in the church and all kinds of problems at Corinth, he reminds them of this right out of the gate. For the word of the cross, chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness. It's ridiculous to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, there are a few things that would have been associated with power in the ancient Roman world um, less commonly than a cross. It's the epitome of losing. You're being erased. Caesar wins, you lose. You thought you had power, ha, you're on a cross. And this is saying the inverse of that. That the, the cross, which looks like folly to people out in the world, to Christians, we know that it is actually the power of God. Verse 22, he says the Jews, they're not after this. They're seeking signs. The Greeks, they're looking for wisdom. But here's what we're preaching, Paul says. Remember, I preached Christ crucified, the cross. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, maybe. Maybe it's folly to the Gentiles. But verse 24 says, to those who are called, whether Jew or Greek, it is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And here's the point. Here's the inversion of the hierarchy. For the foolishness of God, verse 25, is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he points them to their own uh, church, to the constituency of the church at Corinth, and says, look at yourselves. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you, not many people who came to Christ in the church of Corinth were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, they don't have the all-stars socially and intellectually and, and, and politically or whatever in their church. That's not the people who typically came to, to, to Christ at Corinth. Instead, verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God cho chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So you get this colossal hierarchy being flipped upside down okay weakness is power power is weakness wisdom is foolishness foolishness is wisdom because it's divine wisdom versus human wisdom 
And, and that's got to frame everything we read about 1 Corinthians 13 or anything else in 1 Corinthians. So this upside-down hierarchy of, of cruciform love is the only thing, Paul says, that can overcome the divisions and strife that characterized that church at Corinth and has characterized so many groups of people since then. You know what I think when I watch the evening news? Everybody's fighting, everybody's arguing, you know, across ethnic lines, across racial lines, across geopolitical lines, across political lines in our own country. It's just the, vote, the most venomous time I've ever lived in. I know there's been other ones equally venomous in American history, but not in my lifetime. I've never seen anything like it. You know what I think people need? I think the people everywhere need cruciform love. And I tell you, nobody's doing it. A lot of people who claim to be Christians aren't doing it. They are doing, in the name of Christ, the exact same thing everybody else does. And the people who are speaking out sometimes for the downtrodden and marginalized, they're just, it's a power play too. If they get power, they're going to do it the other direction. I don't see a lot of cruciform love anywhere where I'm willing to be weak. I'm willing to take the blow for other people. That's become about as rare as a unicorn uh, lately, even often in the church. So that's what we're talking about today because that's what Paul's talking about. And Paul reminds them that this is what he preached to them and he didn't preach anything else to them. So their coming to accept Jesus was based on cruciformity, cross-shaped uh, love, God initiating and then they're responding. So Paul says, I, 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 rem I remind you that this is supposed to be chapter 2, sorry, I got the wrong reference there. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. When I came to you, brothers, he says, reminding them of his first time to preach the gospel there, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I wasn't some rhetorician, you know, with this golden tongue. I wasn't some person in a high position of power or influence. I decided, he says, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness. All right. I want to make three observations about love from 1 Corinthians 13 now. The greatest of these is love. That's the last statement in 1 Corinthians 13. How is it that something that looks like a cross can be the greatest thing in the world? How can you win by losing? Because that's really what he's saying. Well, briefly, three aspects of love that we've got to grasp if we're going to, la uh, if we're going to grasp, indeed, this greatness of love. First of all, Love is essential. Love's essential. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 3 teach us this. And claiming to be Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, without practicing this cruciform love, self-sacrificing love, is, is, is nothing, short than making, uh, nothing, nothing short of making a false claim. If we think we can be Christian, and cruciform love is optional, We've misunderstood what Christian is. That is Christianity. Christ crucified in all of its dimensions. That's, how, that's, how, that's where salvation comes from. That's where our ethic, our behavior comes from. That's where our relationships, what they're shaped by. Everything is reducible to cruciformity. And if we don't see that as essential, then we are making a false claim when we say that hey, we're following Christ. 
So the gift of tongues, he says in chapter 13, verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, you know, you might like cymbals and gongs. You know, maybe I'm a person, that sounds really cool to me. I, I like banging on that gong. He says it's doing nothing to build up the other person. So it's, it's of no use. No matter what you think about it, it's whether it helps another person. Uh, in verse 2, the gift of prophecy. He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, I've got all these divine, di divinely given insights, but I have not faith, or, or and, and I have all faith too, so prophecy and faith, and my faith allows me to remove mountains. But despite having prophecy or faith, if I have not love, he says, I am nothing. Nothing. Think about that. What does it mean to be nothing? To have nothing. To, to have God say to you, you have, what if on the judgment day God says to you, I want to tell you something. You thought you had all these things spiritually? You had nothing. You have nothing. I regard what you have as nothing. And he says that about the person who's ready to use these gifts, but has forgotten about love. 13.3, he says, even if you are, are, are motivated so much, you're so devoted that you're, you're willing to give away your possessions, give away all that you have, and you're even willing to give up yourself in martyrdom, perhaps, you know, your body to be burned, if you don't have love, i.e. an intention to think about other people and edify them and help them and see to their needs, then you don't have nothing, you don't have anything. So in sum, when it comes to being Christ's body, if I don't have love, I have nothing. Without cruciform love, I don't have Christianity. I think we could argue very, very safely. All right? Now, here's the second new word. You ready for your second new word? Some of you know this word, too. Um, you're like, you've got to bring, you gotta bring a, bigger, a better game than that. Do you know sine qua non? David, what's it mean? So I knew you were going to use a trigonometry, yes. Uh, so sine qua non is, uh, it, it's uh, uh, from, uh, from Latin. Uh, I usually say sine, sine qua non, but I think it's sine qua non or something like that. It literally means without which not. So it's the thing without which you don't have the thing. The sort of essential condition to have the thing. Okay? So what I'm saying is, Cruciform love, self-sacrificial love, thinking about other people and their interests before your own, is the sine qua non of Christianity. It's all through Paul's, 1 Corinthians, it's all through everything he wrote. Philippians 2, this is, you know, have this mind which was in Christ. He emptied himself for others. This is the essence. So to say we, we follow Christ without a willingness to give up ourselves and our own interests for other people and their interests is like saying, you know, I love democracy. I just have a trouble, you know, trusting the common people to run the government. You know what democracy means? Rule by the people. So you don't like democracy, actually. You can't say you like democracy if you don't like a government that's, that's of and for and by the people. That's what it is, right? It's the sine qua non. It's the thing without which you don't have it. It's like wanting chocolate chip cookies 
without chocolate chips. I mean, they kind of make it a chocolate chip cookie, right? Or to, an example for Stephen. Let's say Stephen hates cheese. What if he decides, you know what, I think I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a new career. I'm going to become a pizza connoisseur and a pizza food you know, reviewer. Well, is pizza pizza without cheese? I know they make it up for people who don't like cheese, but I would argue it's not really pizza. I mean, at what point is a pizza, a, what is it? What, what, you know, it's dough, it's tomato sauce. You, you get them without tomato sauce a lot, but I, cheese is kind of a thing that is required, I think. Or somebody says, you know, I'd really like to be in a relationship. I'm tired of being lonely. But vulnerability is out of the question. If you're not willing to be vulnerable and real with somebody, you will not have intimacy. That, that's kind of what it is. And there's a thousand examples without which not. So love is essential because love is the essence of Christianity. Secondly, love is something which must be enacted. It's enacted. You know, for many people today, love, if I just said the English word love, it means something much less than the full, kind of robust uh, sense that the Scripture intends. So for a lot of people, love is kind of an affection or, or a warm feeling about something. Um, and, and I don't want to go too far with this. It's not that in the Bible love never refers to affection. Sometimes it does. The point is it's not limited to that. Uh, and and I've, I've heard folks before uh, kind of expose uh, that they have kind of a poor grasp of biblical love when they'll say something like, we don't need, that preacher just keeps preaching on love. We don't need more on love. We need something weighty, something doctrinal. Let me tell you something. Love is the doctrine. That's the doctrine. Everything else is just working out the details and the application of love. If the greatest command in all Scripture is love, if Jesus, the Son of God, said, here it is, I'm going to net it out for you, the whole law and the prophets, they're hanging on. They cohere around. They are animating and working out and manifesting love of God and neighbor. Vertical, horizontal. That is the doctrine. And I think what people, they picture love as something else. That's why they can make a statement like that. You know, love isn't just a bunch of people sitting around a campfire singing Kumbaya. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I, don't, I, I sang Kumbaya when I was a Cub Scout. Kind of fun. You're out in the woods, you know, and blah, 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 blah. I don't even know what it means, but it was fun. I like guitars, and I like nature, and I like people. So win, win, win. But love is a lot more than that. Love is also more than just an idea. It's not just a, a beautiful notion, some abstract, you know, idea or dream. Well, that would be wonderful. Great concept. No, it's not just a concept. It's a conduct. Not a belief, it's a behavior. For love, for, for Paul rather, love is an action word. And that is really true here in 1 Corinthians 13. Now you can't see this in the English as much, but in verses 4 through 7 when he kind of describes in the heart of this chapter the, the dimensions or the traits or attributes of love, we have a lot of linking verbs, love is this, and then adjectives, patient, kind, and so on. It is not arrogant, another adjective. In the Greek, I think all of the all of the verbs. I didn't look at all of them, but most of them, as I was looking through here, this is a, there's no there's not many adjectives. It's all verbs, and it's not rendered that way in most of our English versions. The ESV sort of does it some half one way, half the other, but it's 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 this. It's he's saying, here's what love does. Here's how you know love. It does this. It doesn't do that. It's active. 
I think that's interesting. Paul's description of love is, is by what it does or does not do. So more, more often than not, we know love when we see action, Particular, particularly action that moves us in a direction that's different than what we might naturally or selfishly prefer. You can know that's love. If you're always kind of pushing for what you think and what you want and what you feel and what makes you comfortable, that's about you. Love is going to, at least some of the time, push you out of that to do new things that you believe God wants you to do. They're not going to feel comfortable early on. Now, things will change. God's going to be with you. He promises that, especially if you're responding to Him to do that. But a change in conduct, doing things that aren't necessarily our preference or, or refraining from doing things that would be our, our preference. Look at 13.4. I think this one is really key. Love is something which does not insist on its own way. One of the ways you know love is it, oh, it isn't always pushing for its own way, its own interest, its own preference, its own will. And indeed, most of all the expressions describing it here in this paragraph involve freedom from self-interest on some level. So, patient and kind. Why are we patient and kind with other people? Because it's not all about us and our staying in our comfort zone and us never being pushed a bit. We're, we're, you know, get with the program by which we mean me. We're patient and kind with other people. They have their own time frame. They're at a different place. They have a different background. They have different problems and challenges than I do. So that's a, that's a sort of, you know, thinking outside myself kind of, of way to think and be. What about, in, obviously, envying and boasting are about self. That needs even no comment, I think. Um, love isn't arrogant or rude. Rudeness is essentially being insensitive to somebody else's feelings. Blew right through them. That's rude. That's why rudeness is a sin. It's not just being impolite. Um, it's, it's being oblivious to somebody else's feelings. And then things like irritable and resentful. You know, irritable and resentful, uh, resentment and irritability, I think a lot of us would, would not see as a spiritual thing. Ah, he's just, you know, he's just bilious right now. He, he, he's got indigestion or something. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not really in the realm of, of right or wrong. Here, though, it's listed as the polar opposite of love. Why? Because really, irritability and resentment are often indicators of an overly enlarged sense of self. I'm not going to be irritable about something and resent it unless I'm leaning into my own victimhood a little too much. That's not to say hurt isn't legitimate. People haven't hurt me or you or something like that. That's legitimate. It's real. Your feelings are real. But if you nurse those continually, at some point it can be said, you're thinking about yourself, really, a bit much. Maybe the solution is to get out. of It's an indicator that you're too self-oriented, too self-absorbed, or something like that. Now, that applies to 100% of us, I'm sure, because we've all experienced irritability and resentment. All right, and then finally, our, we want to make our third point here quickly before we uh, run out of the five minutes that are theoretically left to me. Love is eternal. It's essential. It's something which must be enacted. And part of the reason for all of, of this is that it's the only thing that's going to last beyond this present age. It's the only thing of all the things mentioned that isn't temporary. So let's read 
the last uh, uh, paragraph here, beginning in verse 8. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. That gift in the ancient church is going to pass away. Tongue speaking, that gift, foreign languages without studying them, first century thing, that, that's going to pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, he illustrates it now, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And then another analogy. Now, he says, in the present age, we see in a mirror dimly. Think of an ancient mirror. They weren't like ours, where it's like crystal clear if it's clean. They were not made of the same stuff. I don't remember what they were made of, but I know that you, it was a kind of a cloudy, fuzzy image. Think of like you're watching Netflix and it pixelates, which at the Hampton House is every single time. We have, what's the slowest, most unreliable internet you have? Let me have that and I'll pay the most money that you want for it. We are getting fiber though. It's being dug right now. Praise God for every good and perfect gift. Um, anyway, so imagine like a really fuzzy image. That's your mirror image back then. It's not like a mirror today, right? He says, right now we, we, we can only see God and, and what we're going to become and what the new world will be like in a kind of dim way. But then when we get there, it'll be God, seeing God face to face. Now we know him only in part. But then we will know him fully just as he now fully knows us. And then he says in verse 13, so now faith, hope and, and love. These three things abide. They dwell on. They go on. But the greatest of these is love. Alright. Um, I'm going to skip some stuff here and just jump to uh, just jump to this last statement. Faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these is love. I want you that that is an astounding statement to me. To say that something out is greater than faith and hope in the Bible, that's saying something, right? Think of all the other things we know in the Bible about faith and hope. That's a stunning statement. Um, the greatest of these isn't faith. There's something greater than faith. It's not hope. There's something greater than hope. Did you know the Bible says that we are saved by hope in Romans 8? Did you know that the Bible says we're saved by faith? Ephesians 2, John 3, 16, 57 other places. Things that we're saved by are not the greatest thing. Isn't that interesting? And think about that list in, in, in Ephesians 4 where we're told to pursue unity, right? A really robust statement, one of Paul's many where unity is like at the heart of Christianity. The people of God ought to be one. And he, he lists seven things there that are the basis for Christian unity. The seven ones of Ephesians 4, you remember what I'm talking about? There, there's, um, there's one uh, body. There's one, uh, I'm going to get them out of order here. There's one uh, spirit. There's one hope. There, there's one Lord. There's one baptism. There's one God. I, I don't know if I said all seven of them. But here's the point I'm making. Hope and faith are in the list. They're among, that's just seven, there's only seven of them. You want perfect unity? You have the perfect number of things you need. And I think sometimes our problem is we think there's 47,000 other things we've got to have to have unity. The Bible doesn't say that. 
Sometimes people, the de facto approach is, if we don't agree down the line on every single thing I think about the Bible, I'm going to a different church. Read Ephesians 4. Read 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, where people didn't agree on, even in the first century, on every, they did agree on, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And some of the other stuff, people are never going to all the way agree on. But what's interesting to me is hope and faith are in the list of the necessary essentials for unity. And here is Paul saying, love is greater than those. That's pretty remarkable. How, how is it that love, which is not named in that list, maybe because it runs through all of them, is more lasting or more permanent than faith and hope. Well, think about eternity. And I think what he's talking about here, uh, we're not going to get into this now. That's the part I skipped. Um, when he says, that which is perfect has come, I don't think that's just the completed Bible. I know that's a common view that developed in a response to charismatic stuff in the early to mid-20th century. But I think this is talking about the, the actual age to come, like the new heavens, new earth, eternity with God. And the scriptures and the prophecies, the prophecies and tongues and all that they give us some picture of God. We can know him somewhat dimly. But when we're in eternity with God in the new heavens, new earth, we're going to be in his presence. Right? Behold, Revelation 21, 1 and following, the dwelling, the, I see the new heavens, new earth coming down, the new Jerusalem, I'm sorry, the new heavens, new earth, the new, new Jerusalem coming down into that. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with humans. He will be their God and they will be his people. We're together. We're seeing him face to face because of what Jesus did. So in eternity, we're not going to need faith and hope anymore, at least not in the sense that we need them now, because they will have been realized. Right? The thing that they're pointing to, we will have arrived at, living in the presence of God. That's what faith is. We're believing that's coming. We're believing God's statements about his good future for us. Well, they're here when we get there. We're in his presence. So they've been made obsolete, if you will. Faith and hope have been made obsolete in the new creation because we are in the presence of God. We'll see him face to face. We will know him fully, to use the language of 1 Corinthians 13. Love, on the other hand, which is the greatest of these three, faith, hope, and love, love is the greatest. Why? Because it's going to apparently continue on forever and ever and ever in the new heavens and new earth. How can we know that? Well, Revelation 21 says a little further down that in the new heavens and new earth there will be no need for a sun or moon. Do you remember why? God himself and the Lamb will be the light. They will illuminate the entire cosmos, whatever that means, however literal or figurative, that's a whole other thing. But in some real sense, there is no need even for a sun and moon because God's very presence is the light. And I'll remind you about 1 John says about God. What is God? He's love. If God is love and he's the very sunshine, then love's going to go on forever and ever and ever. Cruciformity will become the order of the day, not some exceptional special thing that people make saints about. Every saint will have been perfected in cruciform love. So you could say that love will be the language of the new creation. 
It's the very lingua franca. It's, what we, it's how we talk and relate. That's who we are. Love is the very air we will breathe in the new heavens, new earth. Self-sacrifice will have eradicated self-interest. Thinking of other people will actually be more appealing to us, more affirming, less scary. You know, getting our own way won't matter so much. The loveliness of God, the beauty of God, the glory of God will just be so big and so obvious it will eclipse all of our petty concerns. And Paul's saying, let that truth of what's coming blast into your present now. He's trying to, to sort of adjust their, their perception, like do a reset on their perspective. There's too much Corinth in the Corinthians and not enough Christ. And there's probably too much America in us and not enough Christ. Too much old man, not enough new man. Too much old woman, not enough new woman. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, if that's the world to which we're all headed, a world of cruciform love, then we better start living like it now. It starts with concrete attitudes and actions that we begin to take in relation to one another in the context of a local church. If it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean anything, really. Functionally, it doesn't mean anything. If it's not going to mean something, as we relate to each other as a church family, then let's just be real and say, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'd rather just play church. We'll come to church, we'll check off the box, we'll, we'll, we'll have our same MO we've always had. And that's how a lot of us, I, I struggle with that. So I'm guessing you do too. I don't know that. But those concrete actions and attitudes that we take with regard to each other in, a, in the life of a local church, that's what we're going to talk more about next week because 1 Corinthians 13 occurs in a context where people are discussing how do they use the gifts that God has given them. Each of them is endowed with gifts. And they're to use those in a way that is shaped by and constrained by and, and permeated through with cruciform, self-sacrificing, cross-shaped Jesus love. That, that's, that's what we are. Uh, that's what we're called to.